Well, it seems doubly inappropriate to let the kids go, but uh, kids, you can go to Children's Church if you would like to. Uh, we're going to continue in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we've been talking about getting ready uh, for a new pastor, uh, but uh, the Gospel of Luke is about getting ready for uh, what is in store for the disciples. Uh, we now enter a season explicitly where we're getting ready for Easter. Uh, I hope that's on your mind a little bit. Uh, so where we are uh, in the Gospel of Luke is uh, coming to the end of the travel narrative, uh, which is a discrete section in the Gospel of Luke that is mostly Lucan. It's mostly uh, stuff that is only in the Gospel of Luke and is not in uh, Matthew or Mark. Uh, but it's this journey to Jerusalem where Jesus is training his disciples, he's discipling his followers uh, and getting them ready for his departure. Uh, in this chapter, there's a, a cluster that I think it's worth paying attention to. Uh, the last two weeks, we looked at two parables. Uh, the first parable was the parable of the unjust judge and the tenacious widow. So those two were held uh, in, in tension, one against the other. Uh, last week, we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Again, uh, the two of them being held in tension against one another. And you can see similarities between uh, those two parables. Now, there are two real-time, real-life uh, incidents in the life of Jesus that kind of put into play what he's just taught in the parables. Uh, first, these comments uh, on children. Uh, and then we're going to look next week at his interaction with uh, the rich ruler. And, I, and again, I, I want you to see that, that something is happening here in the, in the clustering of these events where this powerful judge and the woman who lacks power uh, interact with one another. And then there is this Pharisee who is full of himself and apparently full of uh, certain resources that he perceives he has contrasted with the tax collector who has none and cries out uh, in that poverty. And now we have uh, uh, this look at the children. Uh, and, and what comes up is this mention of the kingdom of God. It comes twice in this passage, and that needs a little bit of reflection. And I think we got to, you know, take a step back and be careful about this. I think that the remedy for a lot of what ails the evangelical church in the Western world these days is contained uh, in our having a better appreciation for an understanding of the kingdom of God. Uh, it's a big deal in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, back in chapter 17, Tim preached the Pharisees coming and quizzing Jesus on the timing uh, of the kingdom's coming, uh, but there was a whole lot more before that uh, that indicated that Jesus was uh, speaking very freely about the kingdom of God. There are 23 mentions of the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke. It's the central feature of Jesus' preaching. Uh, he describes his preaching in chapter 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Again, in chapter 8, he summarizes the content of his preaching, saying, I'm preaching the kingdom of God. It was also the content of the disciples' preaching in chapter 9. Uh, his teaching about the kingdom is perplexing and it's really challenging. He says the kingdom belongs to the poor in chapter 6. 
Uh, it is taught in parables that are deliberately opaque in chapter 8. These things are told so that they won't understand is what he says. It's like a grain of mustard that grows into a huge tree. It's also like leaven, a little of which has great effect uh, in the flour in which it's put. Uh, the teaching about the kingdom is not only challenging, but it's exacting. Uh, he says that one who proclaims the kingdom leaves the dead to bury their own. He said no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So you have this challenge, you know, from the verses in Matthew that Jack read about some people who are going to be unable to enter the kingdom. And, that, and, and he actually alludes to that in, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. If you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom has come near the sick who are healed, but it also has come near those who have refused to listen in chapter 10. Uh, his healing is evidence that the kingdom has come. He says if, if I am healing, then you know the kingdom has come. If I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom has come. As was read earlier, the disciples are to seek the kingdom rather than food or clothing, knowing that God is going to provide such. In chapter 12, he also said, since it was God's good pleasure to give them the kingdom, the disciples could sell their possessions. They could give to the poor, and they could live close to the land and store up treasure in heaven. So all of these things, you know, I think it's good to kind of take a step back and think about them and remember them. You know, the kingdom of God looms before us. And again, in contemporary evangelical culture, I mean, we were all raised with this. Uh, you know, we are taught some kind of vague version of free justification. I think it gets kind of corrupted. Uh, but, you know, we're taught, and many of us have been in evangelistic services. And I remember when I was a young man and hearing the gospel for the first time, uh, having been raised in the Church of Rome, so I knew the parameters. I knew the language, uh, but hearing that I could come to Christ uh, just as I was and hearing the song Just As I Am sung and having it reiterated and pounded into me, uh, you don't need to change, you just need to come. God accepts you the way you are and in fact for you to seek to make your own righteousness, your own performance, a condition upon which you come to God is to corrupt the gospel that you come just as you are. It's free. It's that free. And I remember early on saying, it can't be that free. It's impossible. Uh, but the preacher saying, no, it's just that free. Well, that's all true. Uh, but Jesus uses language of the kingdom. That he says, it's not simply a matter of coming just as I am, but it's a matter of entering the kingdom. And in entering the kingdom, there are qualifications. There are things that will prevent you from entering the kingdom. Uh, there are things that, that will be demonstrable in your life as you enter the kingdom. And so this is hard stuff. Let's wrestle with this. Let's think it through uh, together. Uh, all the while relying on, knowing and relying on the love of God, on the grace of God. Uh, let's see what Jesus has to say. Uh, let me pray for us first. Uh, Father in heaven, we desire very much for your word to be a swift word that passes from our minds and intellects, uh, from our ears into our minds and intellects, and from our minds and intellects into our hearts. Uh, 
We pray that it would be planted deeply there so that it would bear fruit, uh, a fruit that is peaceable, uh, a fruit that is uh, uh, full of joy, uh, a fruit that is also beneficial uh, to our neighbors, a fruit that is ultimately uh, honoring to you. Uh, So please uh, help us in this regard, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Okay, here, I'm just going to read these verses quickly. Uh, Starting in verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. This is the word of God and we believe it's true. Uh, So, uh, the first and obvious thing to talk about would be kids. Uh, The image of Jesus blessing the babies is iconic and it's endearing. Uh, You might remember that back in chapter 9, there was a squabble among the disciples uh, as to which of them was the greatest. And Jesus, in order to uh, answer that squabble, uh, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Uh, For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So uh, Jesus' ministry uh, has something to do with children. And it's up up to us to scratch our heads and figure out what that is. Uh, We should be wary of overcooking this uh, into sentimentality. And, And there are preachers that have done that for a long time. Uh, turning this into a little bit of a romantic notion about the sweetness and innocence of children. Um, In in our world today, uh, kids don't have it too well. Uh, They are commodities and they are either disparaged or they are idolized. Uh, In our world, the world in which we live, they are disparaged. Does anyone here rejoice when they see that sitting next to them in the airplane is a a parent with a child, with an infant. Uh, We get uh, a little bit unnerved by that. Uh, And in fact, you know, there is a a little bit of a a problem with uh, wanting to get rid of the kids for the sake of our own uh, peace. Uh, There was an interesting column in the Wall Street Journal today, or not today, this week, earlier this week. Uh, It had an arresting title that said, A Crying Church is a Growing Church. And what it meant was that if a church had babies crying uh, in the congregation, it was a good sign uh, that it was a healthy church. Uh, George MacDonald, I don't know if you know that name, he was a guy that C.S. Lewis called his mentor, uh, once said that he wouldn't trust a person who didn't enjoy the company of children. Uh, and Lewis actually himself admitted not preferring the company of little children, but he thought that that was a personal uh, defect Uh, in himself. Uh, But kids are disparaged if they're not being idolized. Uh, If some are not interested in kids at all, others are convinced that life is meaningless without them. And so there's this great uh, uh, energy uh, to bear children among those who struggle to do so. And uh, and of course the the grief of infertility is well known. It's it's in the Bible. It's mapped out. Uh, Some of the most poignant uh, pictures in the Bible uh, are of uh, women yearning 
uh, we, one would assume their husbands joined them in this, for progeny and, uh, and, and wonderful uh, praises offered when those prayers uh, were heard. Uh, but that's a little bit different from what happens again in the world in which we live in which kids are uh, deemed to be the saviors of the family and where folks will say my life is meaningless and empty without children. Children are held up to be the saviors of marriages and the center of one's meaning. Uh, now kids suffer for that. Uh, they can't bear that burden. Uh, so again, they're kind of in a rough spot. And it is always the case that any kind of sin or vice always descends to the most vulnerable. It always descends to those without resources. And they're the ones that get hurt. It was actually a pretty interesting book published several years ago by uh, a Harvard professor, uh, Robert Putnam, uh, called Our Kids. And, uh, and talked about, you know, the, the lot that has befallen our kids in the last 50, 60, 70 years. And they're in a rough spot, you know, particularly if they're uh, in a position of not having a lot of resources. Now, within the faith, hopefully, kids are neither disparaged nor idolized. Uh, we understand that they are a gift from God. Uh, we can all quote Psalm 27, uh, children are a heritage from the Lord. Uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man and woman uh, who fills his quiver with them. Uh, we also understand, again, God willing, uh, that kids are sinners and they're often foolish. Uh, the Apostle Paul can admonish the Corinthians to grow up, stop thinking like children, and we understand that from the womb, uh, the kids are self-centered and rebellious. They need discipline and love. Uh, they need the nurture and admonition of the Lord is what uh, the parents promise uh, whenever a child is baptized, that they will raise a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And of course, the congregation promises to assist the parents in the Christian nurture of their children. I think it's interesting that we don't promise to assist the parents in the admonition of their children, but in the nurture of them. They need both. I was taught when I was in counseling in a counseling program, uh, the kids are always asking two questions. Uh, am I loved and can I get my own way? And the professor said, you, oh, you need to be very clear about this and not confuse your answers. Uh, you need to answer your kids relentlessly, tenaciously, uh, consistently. Yes, you are loved. And no, you cannot get your own way. Uh, we, I was, T took off this yesterday and went up to Boston, and she's going to be with our daughter and our little two-year-old uh, grandson. You know where this is going, but uh, a video was sent to us yesterday from our daughter saying, uh, when Oma gets here, will she help me with this? And it was a picture, of, it was a video of our grandson stepping into the street and his mom saying no and stepping a little further into the street as his mom says no. And she said, you got to help, you got to help. Um, but with all of that, kids in this passage are exemplars of citizenship in the kingdom. And that's what we want to consider this morning. Uh, mainly to think about the kingdom. At every turn in the Gospel of Luke, the disenfranchised are preferred, and real, real spiritual health is found in your being able to identify uh, with these who are 
weak with these who are without resources. Jesus says earlier, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the grieved and despised. He flipped that around in the Gospel of Luke and said, but woe to the rich, woe to the well-fed, woe to those who are happy and admired. Now that is something that would, has got to make all of us scratch our heads, right? I mean, we all have to kind of say, wait a minute. I'm pretty rich, I'm certainly well-fed, and it is my aim to be happy and admired. And sometimes I succeed at that. But Jesus said, woe to those. Uh, because he preferred the poor, the hungry, the grieved, and despised. Now, there's a reason for that that we've got to, again, scratch our heads about. Uh, but the kingdom is much more about a disposition than it is about performance. It's much more about the orientation of the heart than it is about rule keeping. Now, rule keeping can be a wonderful thing, but you and I know that rule keeping can go sour in a New York minute. Two things are said in this passage. Uh, first, that kids are emblematic of those to whom the kingdom belongs. That's in verse 16. To such belongs the kingdom of God. The second thing that is said is that entry into the kingdom depends on receiving it like a child. That's verse 17. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So, uh, what makes the little ones emblematic of those in the kingdom? And how can you and I enter the kingdom by receiving it as children? Uh, well, first, uh, they are emblematic of the citizens of the kingdom uh, because generally speaking, uh, they are a lot like the tax collector. They're a lot like the, uh, the, uh, the tenacious widow. Uh, they're unconcerned with self-righteousness and self-congratulation. Again, you know, sinners though they be, and in many ways the paradigm of selfishness, you don't find them arrogant. You don't find them puffed up, full of themselves. They're not like the Pharisee in the previous passage. They're much more like the tax collector. But more to the point, and I think that this is the most important point in the passage, uh, they are weak. And the way that we understand that is that they are helpless and dependent. One of the preachers that I read this week said that this is the hallmark of children, is their helplessness. You know, one of the laughable moments in, in our uh, history, the history of Western civilization, was uh, Rousseau's comment, you know, and Rousseau was a brilliant man who, you know, kind of turned the world on its ear, and we're all kind of marching to his beat uh, ever since, and uh, he was the one that was kind of at the at the foundation of this notion of kids being innocent and, and wonderful and loving and being corrupted by society. But his famous statement was, man is born free, yet is everywhere in chains. And, uh, and that resonated with people enough that they took up the banner and ran with it, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, alone among, well, I shouldn't say alone because I'm not a, a biologist or a zoologist, but uh, you know, in some ways, the, 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 what marks us as human beings is the absolute helplessness into which we're born. You know, I mean, if you've, if you've had puppies or if you've seen horses born or a lot of animals, they're on their feet right away. 
and they're moving around and you know the baby human babies are born absolutely and utterly dependent and I think it's interesting in this passage that the word children is not being used in verse 15 but it's babies they were bringing babies to him that's a it's just a great picture uh, the parents wanting Jesus to touch their children and, and, and that touch is to lay his hand on them and is to bless them. And it might even be to heal them. That might have been going on. Infant mortality was a big deal back then. Uh, and Jesus is reaching out and touching them. And he's blessing them. Because they're helpless and they're dependent. And this is hard to grasp. This is a cornerstone of the gospel, friends. A cornerstone of the gospel that is hard to grasp because we, as we grow and mature, are not helpless when it comes to most of our lives. In fact, we are encouraged not to be helpless. We are encouraged to get busy. Uh, we're encouraged to develop skills, uh, to become strong. And we know that in our lives, that hard work, determination, smarts, and skills uh, help us succeed. Uh, they help you succeed in school. If you will study, you'll get better grades. Uh, they help you succeed in your business or in your work. If you work hard and perform better, you'll be rewarded for that. And even when we play, you know, if you put in the work at the driving range, you, you might lower your score. You might. Uh, so in every area of our lives, we're taught, you know, that hard work and effort are going to produce a reward. But spiritually, this is where we have to understand that that is turned on its head. That that is turned absolutely upside down. That spiritually all that hard work uh, might not do you a bit of good. Now that's not to say that, you know, discipleship and self-discipline aren't going to yield fruit. But only if they're built on this foundation of helplessness. You know, when we talk about the real thing of who we are spiritually before the Lord, it is just the opposite of the rubric of hard work and discipline. When we come into the presence of God, we have to have a completely different mindset than that with which we approach the rest of our lives. Things have to be completely different. Um, George Matheson was a Scottish pastor. I think he was blind from birth. He was a pastor in the last half of the 19th century, and he wrote this confession. Uh, o Lord, as long as I am apart from you, I am self-satisfied because I have no standard by which to measure my low stature. As long as I can stay away from you, I'm okay. And then he writes... But when I come near you, there for the first time I see myself. In your light I behold my darkness. In your purity I behold my corruption. My very confession of sin is the fruit of holiness. And then he cries out to Jesus, let me gaze on you more and more until in the vision of your brightness I loathe the sight of my impurity until in the blaze of that glory which human eye has not seen I fall prostrate, blinded, broken, to rise again a new man in you. Uh, that's a picture of spiritual helplessness. 
As long as I'm apart from you, I'm doing okay. But when I come near you, all of a sudden reality comes to bear. And I understand that I need, well, I need grace and mercy in a time of need. And, and so for this reason, Jesus says that it is these kids are those uh, who are emblematic of those who are members of the kingdom. Because to become a part of the kingdom, you need to recognize, get rooted in uh, your spiritual helplessness. The larger context of Luke emphasizes this. I've said it already. Uh, the kingdom is most accessible to those who do not have the upper hand, uh, socially, politically, economically, but spiritually. I mean, all of that stuff is reflective of the real matter at hand, and that is the spiritual uh, poverty. And then secondly, here he says that you have to receive the kingdom like a child, otherwise you will not enter it. Now, what does it mean to receive the kingdom as a child? Well, first, obviously, it is with faith. Uh, but faith, faith won't do here, will it, the word faith? Again, I, I mentioned this in the evening service a couple of weeks ago. We have corrupted the word faith in the English language where uh, we mistake it for intellectual assent. Uh, we mistake faith for simply um, uh, agreeing with and embracing propositions. That's not what the Bible means by faith. Uh, when it says that we are justified by faith, when it says that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, that's not simply the embracing of propositions. Uh, but it's more than that. And so the, the better word, I think, to put into this context is that receiving the kingdom of the child is to receive it with trust. And, and that's, that's faith. Faith is assent. We do believe in certain propositions, but more than assent, it is trust. It is leaning into I mentioned uh, Alistair McGrath's comments uh, when I uh, was on that Sunday evening uh, that it's, it's assent, it's trust, it's commitment, and it's obedience. It is leaning all in. That's to receive the kingdom of God like a child. It's what it means to trust. And again, you know, you're severely truncating what it means to receive the kingdom if you're even receiving it at all, if it's simply on, on the basis of your intellectual apprehension of the truths that are taught in the Bible, because they invite you to trust. And that trust bears fruit. So I would say to receive the kingdom of God, of course, means that it's received with humility. Now, I don't want to keep, you know, beating that drum, uh, but Jesus seems to keep beating that drum. Uh, that there is a humility that is a necessary component of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And to be a citizen of the kingdom of God just cannot coexist with being puffed up and with being proud. It can't, it can't do it. Now, I know that it does it all the time in my life and in your lives as well, I would guess. But hopefully the, the word of God will arrest us at that point. And saying, this won't do. It, it, these, these are entirely at odds with one another. 
So receiving the kingdom as a child is trust, it's humility. And I think it's simple and uncomplicated love. It is simply a love for God. It is a laying down of the arms. It is a receptivity to his love. I'm willing to be loved. Uh, But also there is the corresponding affection. Now again, I, I just think that this stuff has the capacity to arrest the flaws in our faith. You know, maybe for all of our cultural Christianity, for all of our head knowledge and all of our profession of the propositional, we never really get down to receiving the kingdom as a child. And and I'll, I'll make that a little bit more pointed. Maybe for all your cultural Christianity and all of your profession of the propositional, you've never really received the kingdom as a child. Well, you'd be in good company. Look at the disciples shooing away the children. It's an amazing feature in this passage, isn't it? It's a little bit of a comfort to those of us who struggle to see just how dense and unreceptive and blinded and the disciples just couldn't get it. They couldn't get it. It's an amazing thing to me in the beginning of the book of Acts. They start grilling Jesus on the kingdom, indicating that they have no understanding of it. Even even as he's raised from the dead. Well, again, it's a perverse kind of comfort uh, that comes. But we need to come back and say... Are we trusting or are we merely being presumptuous? Rather than receiving God's grace, uh, we can presume upon it. And so we can harbor resentments and lusts and anxieties, assuming that such are going to be forgiven. It's not a big deal. Well, brothers and sisters, it's time to stop that. Time to stop that. Takes a while for it to sink in. All of our lives, in fact, it's a good thing that God is patient. Amen? Come on. One of my favorite interactions of Martin Luther, it's in his table talk. There's a friend of his named Dr. Weller uh, who came to visit him uh, because he was depressed. And uh, you didn't know that people got depressed in the 1500s, but they did. And uh, he came to him and said, I'm depressed. Uh, Can you help me? And, And here's Luther's comment. He said, I too often honor God in this way. That's tongue in cheek. When I should procure good incense for him, I bring him the stinking pitch and fetid dung of murmuring and impatience. And then he said, if we didn't have the article concerning the forgiveness of sins, that article in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, which God has promised surely to keep, we'd be in a bad way. <laughs> I love that picture. I wish I had the courage to do it when someone comes to me and said, I'm depressed. I too often honor God in this way. Uh, when I ought to be singing his praises, 
I bring instead the stench of murmuring and impatience. Good thing, good thing we have that article concerning the forgiveness of sins. Because it's true. It really is true. So in the end, we're drawn not only to the kingdom, but we're drawn to the king himself. Again, the picture here is endearing. Uh, Who can resist Jesus at this point? Who teaches with such authority and heals with such power and yet loves to be distracted by kids and rebukes those uh, who who, uh, try to shoo them away. He rebukes the powers that be, he rebukes the Pharisees, and he prefers the company of those uh, who, you know, probably diminish his, his stature a little bit. Well, it makes us hungry. It makes me hungry uh, for the sacrament. Uh, my need is profound. So is yours. Uh, it's a good thing that we have this remedy. Uh, I had a professor at seminary that said uh, that, the, that the Lord's Supper was the Presbyterian uh, substitute for an altar call. And, uh, and I think he's right, uh, that we need uh, to get to this grace that we're being offered. So uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful to you for the power of the word, uh, its ability uh, to cut uh, between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, and, uh, and really to make us new people. It's really what we want. And uh, we exist in this tension uh, as uh, we powerfully confess sins earlier uh, in the service. Uh, but also wanting to lift our heads up and say, look at all the good things you're doing. Look at the change that you're uh, incorporating into our lives. Look at the way you are saving us. Uh, we, we really do resonate with the confession when it says that having justified us, you sanctify us so that more and more uh, we're able to put to death the misdeeds of the body uh, and employ uh, the means of grace to the end that the fruit of the Spirit flows. So that's what we ask for this morning uh, as we come to this supper, that you would uh, give us grace, uh, that you would take these mundane elements and set them apart uh, for your holy purposes uh, so that we would uh, commune, have fellowship with, participate in uh, the body and blood of Jesus this morning. We ask it in his name. Amen.